This podcast is sponsored by Flash Talking by MediaOcean, names that should be familiar to Marketecture listeners. MediaOcean has been the agency system of record for more than 50 years, and brands have been using Flash Talking since the days of, well, Flash. They joined forces two years ago and also folded in the social ad stack from 4C. Now, Flash Talking does ad serving, dynamic creative, and ad verification across all channels, including CTV. So you can say the Flash and Flash Talking were first how fast you could do everything on their platform. Learn more at MediaOcean.com slash Flash Talking. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Papero. I'm joined today by Eric Franti and Joanna O'Connell, uh, formerly a VP Principal Analyst at Forrester, and just this week announced as the new Head of Innovation for R3. Congrats, Joanna, and thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, and thank you so much for having me. Before we get started, a bunch of uh, news from the Architecture Front. We had a big week this week. So first, on Tuesday, we released our 100th interview. This was the trade desk to go into depth on Gemini and UID2. Um, that was a really interesting uh, episode, a lot of good information. Secondly, we announced that all Marketecture interviews have full transcripts available. This is the number one feature request from our subscribers. So if you don't have time to watch the video or audio, you can download a PDF and read it on the train or however you want to consume that content. So that is available to all subscribers. And lastly, Today, we announced that we have an AI bot that has been trained on our 100 hours of interviews. So you can ask this AI bot really complicated questions about ad tech and martech, and it will give you pretty good answers. Um, and that's trained on the interviews I've done, Eric Sufert, all of our experts. Um, so it has really good content on the subjects we've covered. I asked it questions like compare all the clean room vendors and put it at a table, and it gave me an actually good response. Um, so next time you have a big client meeting, ask the AI bot. That is free for everyone for a couple of weeks that it's going behind the paywall. I've been playing with it this morning, Ari. It's it's great. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I've just been asking it random questions, and uh, it, the answers are quite good. So congrats. Thanks. That's great. Great to hear. All right. Back to the show, Joanna. Um, so tell us about your new thing. Uh, what is R3? I'm not that familiar with the company. And what's your job there? So actually, before I do, can I just ask you to send me that clean rooms comparison in a table? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> actually, go to go to work, <laughs> TV and there's an AI tab. You can ask whatever you want. It's free. I'm actually, well, I'm actually doing research on clean rooms right now for, for Sim, the trade body that looks at, at uh, video and TV advertising through the lens of measurement. So it's like very, very timely. So or it's funny, funny you mentioned that. So anyway, yeah, the new the new job. I'm really excited. I, I feel like R3 is the most important company you've never heard of. So these guys are a global consultancy. They've been around for quite a while. They focus on or have traditionally focused on helping brands navigate the agency landscape. So if a brand, a big global brand is looking to, you know, streamline its agency roster or optimize its agency roster or look for a new AOR or, you know, shop around the creative business or better understand the kind of inner workings of how the media is is being run inside of an agency relationship. They do all of that work and they do it really, really well. They... I think came to me because, I mean, you guys sort of know what I'm about. You know, I'm out there talking about the future of advertising. And and... Needless to say, you didn't have to look for a job. They came to you. That's the important point here. We like to... 
<laughs> to be clear. I do. That's very nice of you. They did come to me, which was very flattering. But yes, I, I you know, I, I'm relatively well known for the feature of advertising stuff, the data deprecation stuff, the, um, you know, kind of the point of view on ad tech, programmatic, you know, all that stuff. And so I think they saw an opportunity to just enrich their own understanding of some of these like really, really nascent but super important trends in the marketing world, the data-driven marketing world, and to kind of bolster their roster of experts inside the organization. So really excited. I mean, innovation can mean a lot of things, and I think it will. I think it will mean a lot of things. Should we expect uh, you to be a continuing public figure in our industry, or will it be dominated by client work or both? You will never see me again. That is it. No, I'm just kidding. No, I definitely will still be out there quite a lot. I mean, I... I don't think that they'd be happy or I'd be happy if that wasn't the case, right? I mean, I love being out there. I, that's how I learn. I love being connected to this community. I love having a point of view that I can share in this community. And so, you know, just try and, just try and stop me, Ari. Right, exactly. Um, one thing I really was hoping you could give us some perspective on is that as you, in your various career as an analyst and, and in all these positions, you often have access to the brands and marketers themselves and get their perspective as opposed to the sort of fog of war that that ad tech vendors have where we all talk to each other and do partnership deals and talk about SPO and things like that that no one cares about. Tell us, what, what do you, have you found? What's the difference between what's really happening at the marketer level versus what we talk about at the trade shows and what sort of, what, what would people love to hear from them? Well, you know, the funny thing to me is when I have one of those conversations with an ad tech company and they, you know, they sort of show me their presentation and it says things like the top things CMOs worry about. And it's like, you know, which DSP to choose or <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, really? I mean, go on, you guys. No, that is not what they think about. Like they think about big things because they have to think about big things. I mean, these are you know, members of the C-suite of big global organizations that are facing really, really big challenges, right? There are, they're dealing with macroeconomic challenges, socio-political challenges around the world. You know, they're dealing with, you know, boards, they're dealing with quarterly earnings. I mean, the things that these guys are dealing with are bigger than I think we would, you know, uh, the sort of folks on the ground in the ad tech ecosystem have convinced themselves that they absolutely about. So, yeah right <laughs> so what actually, are they thinking about yeah yeah i mean i did this i did this really interesting series with um with the mma which is a trade association um over the last couple of years around marketing growth frameworks and what drives marketing growth which is a really challenging problem to unpack but as part of that process i got to do a whole bunch of panels with cmos of these really big you know sort of big 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 brands heineken and diageo and Wendy's and MLB and, you know, whatever, you name it. They're thinking about some sort of big pillar kind of tentpole things like how do I organize and structure my team? Um, what is the right roster of people on my team to deliver the most effective outcomes? So they have people problems, right? Um, how do I measure the short-term and long-term impact of my marketing and how do I show that? How do I demonstrate that to the, my fellow leaders inside of my company? So they have measurement challenges. How do I grapple with really complicated questions about, you know, the changing world around me, the ethics of artificial intelligence or the 
you know, proliferation of platforms or the, you know, massive disruptive changes that are happening in consumer behavior. So they have like the, you know, keeping up with the world problems. They have, I mean, those are a few. <laughs> like, wow, those are big problems. They're you big. have that problem in a DSP. Although I, I'm sure the trade desk will claim to solve those problems. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that one alone. <laughs> but, oh, so I guess, like, to be selfish, I would like to know what they care about in the ad tech world. Like, sure, they want to solve the pr world's problems, yeah, yeah. you know, et cetera. But when they do think about ad tech, what do they care about? I mean, obviously, they care about performance, right? But they don't care. I would say they don't care about performance over everything, right? They care about performance, but they also care about quality. They care about transparency and trustworthiness. They care about auditability. They care about you know, to the degree that it's helpful to them, explainability. Like they don't want black boxes that give them performance to the, you know, at the expense of everything else. Right. Interesting. So again, probably a, li a little bit too uh, deep in the ad tech weeds uh, for that audience. But, you know, the, the emergence of and the growth of some of these like back to the future black box ad net models like PMAX, so on and so forth, sort of flies in the face of, of what their their real desires are? I mean, it's a great question. I, you know, it's also, you know, this is a highly variable group. So to say they all want one thing or another is just not accurate, right? So of course, there's going to be a subset of the market that are going to want simplicity and performance. And that's always been true. I do think, though, if you went to like a big brand, a big sophisticated brand, they are not going to tell you that they're comfortable just turning over hundreds of millions of dollars to a black box. I just, I have trouble believing that. I really do. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Joanna, you, so your title is EVP of Innovation, yes? Sounds Got cool. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it is. And and for the groups that you're going to be uh, charged with, with helping and, and working with, right? So the CMOs um, and their organizations. How much is innovation the stuff that's like right around the corner? So to your point, like data deprecation, clean rooms, measurement, all that stuff that I think is, you know, the, the timely things as we think about it in, in ad tech and digital media versus what's like really around the corner and arguably more transformational and maybe aligned with the word innovation, like AI, streaming, all, all of that stuff. Well, the, the thing is, I think all the things you mentioned actually are right around the corner. <laughs> So that's, I mean, that's the reality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like all of that stuff is actually happening now. And we'll come back to that. But but your your question's a fair one, which is like, what's the, I don't know, the time horizon? That's a great question. I mean, I, I would imagine the reality is that CMOs need to grapple with the today problems and the tomorrow problems, but they have to have an eye on the future. Like that's just the nature of the role. And that's the nature of, you know, kind of building a business that can grow and sustain as the world around you changes. So I suspect and I'd like to think that, that I'm already kind of that way. Right. I think I'm pretty good, I think, at being able to talk about the practical realities of today and do it in a way that's grounded in actual fact. And, you know, I don't just use buzzwords and all that kind of stuff, but also in trying to push the envelope on how people think about things, like challenging conventional wisdom around the word personalization or, you know, what what good targeting looks like or, you know, how addressability is supposed to look or whatever, you know, all these kinds of things. And then then those things, when you say those things four years ago, people aren't ready to hear it. And then those things become the today things that they're talking about. So I would like to think that 
just being me out in the world, I will start talking about the things that I think in four years are going to matter. And then in four years, hopefully they become the today problems. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so uh, sometimes I'd heard that, uh, especially when it came to media, that there were what were called innovation budgets, uh, where you would say, you know, 5% of our spend is on kooky stuff like the metaverse. Is that still how people think about things or is that just a uh, an artifact? No, I think that's still true. Um, <laughs> and I, well, I, I sound kind of like more of a downer about it than I mean to be. I think, I suppose the reason I sound a little like a downer is because what can happen is that quote unquote innovation budgets can be treated as one-offs and you know, rather than building like a testing framework where it's like, I'm going to try something new. You know, I've, I've established some baseline of, you know, performance in CTV and I feel good about that. And so I've moved that into, you know, more of a sort of standard working budget but I'm going to try something new. Putting the kind of framework in place to be able to say, like, what am I looking to learn so that I can come out of it saying it worked or it didn't, or this is what worked and this is what didn't, so that you can move it into that bucket of more sustained stuff. I think that sometimes happens, but not enough. I think it can sometimes just be like, oh, we ran that test and now it's done. Right. Right. That's the bane of the ad tech vendor's life when they when they think they have, you know, P&G as a client. And in fact, they had a single campaign that was an experiment. Yeah, I think exactly. that, that I think that that's right. Like experiment by design should have a hypothesis. It should have an expectation of potential learnings so that you could do something at the end of the experiment. But I don't think that that happens a lot of the time. Do you think uh, brands still have metaverse budgets or did that all go away? Uh, well, <laughs> I just I mean the th you know, I I I will will say with deep appreciation that my colleagues at my former colleagues at Forrester were very good at writing thoughtful pieces about what was real and what wasn't and the time horizon on these kinds of things. And the time horizon on these kinds of things is long, right? We are not even close to anything real, at least last I checked. And so, you know, talking about the metaverse can sort of feel like just, I don't know, empty. <laughs> it could feel a little empty to me. So I don't know, maybe. Right, empty like Horizon World and the other Metaverse platforms. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about uh, the sort of data apocalypse, the privacy wave, whatever you want to call it. And I feel as though, and I want to get your take on this, that marketers are still kind of in denial about third-party cookies going away and they're relying heavily on their vendors to handle this problem and that the vendors are not being really very honest about what the effects are going to be. Um, and everyone's sort of shoving it under the rug uh, that it'll, you know, it'll be fine. The sandbox will be fine. And UID2 will be fine, et cetera. That's my point of view. Well, am I on onto something or are marketers actually astute and aware of what's happening? I think that they are aware of what's happening. I think that there's so much uncertainty, real uncertainty that can make the really sophisticated ones feel making a big bet on anything right now feels a little premature. But for everybody else, I think they're just kind of like, oh, that's a tomorrow problem. <laughs> right. So, you know, so there's two things happening. There's a lot of, oh, I'm just going to ignore it until I have to worry about it. And then there's also a lot of big, sophisticated brands going, I know this is coming. I know this is changing. I'm trying to figure out the right ways to set myself up to do it, but I'm doing it on, I'm doing that on what can feel like shifting sands. 
Right. Like, I, I don't know of any vendor, of any marketer who has told their agency, I want to run campaigns with zero cookies, like, for the next couple months to see. I don't, I, I actually think that is happening. Do you think that's happening? Okay. I do. Yeah, I do. And I think that there are vendors that, you know, have solutions that are better design, designed to do that than than other vendors. And those guys are out there doing that work and trying to talk about it probably. And I don't know if the world is sort of prepared to listen, but I, I think a lot of it has been how to frame it so that it didn't feel scary, but rather like transitional. Like I've built something that will help you transition right. from traditional approaches to these more novel approaches. I do think that that is happening. It is not happening wholesale. It is not happening with giant budgets necessarily. And I think it's probably not in the mainstream. I feel as though, once again, and this is my opinion, there's sort of this blast radius concept where, you know, something like a DSP, is it right in the middle of the blast radius of cookies going away? Um, and maybe people are paying a little attention at that level. And But then there's some, so you go out a mile from the blast and you have all kinds of like MarTech lead gen software and other things, which are actually also going to be in the blast radius, but they may not be as aware uh, and you could have all kinds of things that uh, marketers are dependent on stop working the way they're supposed to. I think that that's true. I mean, I remember when we started doing the research at Forrester around, you know, what we ultimately termed data deprecation. This is like years ago, a few years ago. We said at the time, hey, world, <laughs> there's all this stuff that actually uses cookies that's going to be impacted. And we're not really sure that you're looking at it. You know, like you're right. you're worried that your retargeting is going to break and you should worry about that. But like, what about what happens to your analytics platform or anything cross domain or, you know, any implications on econ? Who knows? Like there's it's exactly it's, it's embedded in a lot. <laughs> you know, it's embedded in stuff that we don't really talk about. So I do agree with you that there's more there there than people seem to be talking about. It'll be interesting times. I mean, what happens when your conversion pixel just stops working? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, your conversion pixel stops working and maybe some of your vendors like have a graph or IP address and they kind of give you a report that's not exactly the same as the report they gave you last week and other vendors fall on their face and have nothing. Um, it's going to be kind of interesting to see where the chips fall. Well, I mean, this is why the the research that I'm doing with Sim is so interesting because it's really about the future of data collaboration you know, in a world where publishers are keenly aware of, you know, protecting their user base, but also protecting from a business standpoint, that asset, you know what I mean? It's so valuable. Right. And I can see that that's why they're moving faster, you know, in kind of building solutions or architecting on top of solutions to be able to kind of better control their data, stop shipping it all over the place. It doesn't feel like the buy side is is as far along. I don't know if it's maybe they just don't. I don't think they feel the urgency, but it's coming. <laughs> it's a coming. So, so you've been doing this for a long time. Um, what's changed over the course of maybe your career or last ten years in terms of the things that people care about and and how how marketers are talking about their you know advertising and data problems? Oh man, what's changed? I suppose like you know being able to be in a role of researcher allowed me to have some distance and some perspective and maybe some and sort of take an honest look at how things were going and say to myself, okay, well, the the dream that I had 15 years ago of, you know, what programmatic could be, it's just not 
you know, it doesn't look like what I dreamed of 15 years ago. I think <laughs> okay. because I mean, I just because I was naive about how things were going to work and about all of the business realities that actually dictate how things go. Now, that doesn't mean that programmatic fundamentally as a sort of mode of communication and plugs and pipes is going anywhere. In fact, the opposite, right? Like having more automated, connected systems is the right thing to do. What it looks like in practice, though, you know, you have new kinds of questions like, you know, we grew up in a world of buy-side decisioning and buy-side might because the sell side was pretty beaten down <laughs> in like 2008. You know, um, that's just not true in the ways that it was any, you know, back then. So, you know, who owns decisioning are new questions. Like it's not it's just a simple buyers get to do the deciding anymore. What, what did you think the world would look like if like your programmatic dreams and aspirations came true? Yeah. In 2023, like what 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 did you think you know we would be doing? That's yeah. that's just not a reality today. I mean, go back and you don't have to do this, but go back and look at my research. <laughs> like I, you know, I did this first early DSP waves and the future of programmatic, and I did sure. early research on on data management platforms. Like it was all oriented around this notion of having kind of a centralized mode of seeing everything available from a media standpoint, from a data standpoint, and being in to manage it from a central, you know, command and control where you could look at every potential impression and make really sophisticated decisions based on 250 data parameters to the average pricing at the impression level and manage your audiences holistically, you know, from your central hub and sequence and frequency manage and, you know, measure holistically. Like that was the, because that felt like the most obvious way to both manage performance and manage operational efficiency and manage the consumer experience. And, and what happened? Why didn't that happen? There was too much duplication, too much noise, DMPs so, didn't work. So many things happened. I mean, <laughs> you know, part of it was that I also came from a place, as I said, that was a bit naive, but I also came from a place of being very buy-side oriented. That vision was not necessarily a balanced one when it came to what publishers needed, right? And what publishers needed that they felt that they needed to own or to control or to manage so that they also could build businesses that were healthy and sustainable. So, you know, a couple things. One, wall gardens. I mean, just the reality of Facebook and Google and the way that you have to work with those companies and now Amazon and some others mean that it is just fundamentally, a you know, a a more sort of fragmented world when it comes to platforms and when it comes to data and yeah, when it comes to measurements. That's just true, right? Yeah, that, that was pre-walled garden um, in terms of when you were sort of architecting, you know, that vision, yeah. right? That was yeah. like 2010-ish. I wasn't talking yeah. about any of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I didn't see that and I didn't understand. Like it was the be it was the beginning. Like Google, I think Google had probably bought Invite Media and they had the exchange and stuff. So it was the beginnings of it. But it was just something that again in the in the chair I sat in, I couldn't really I couldn't really see or predict. And they they command still so much money, right? So so there's that part that's just frag you know, the fragmentation that comes with big wall gardens and you know, the, the challenges that that presents for my my beautiful, naive vision. The other thing is... Yeah, what else? Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the what's happening with data deprecation is inherently about 
not allowing for that kind of cross-publisher tracking and targeting. I mean, that's right. And that's by design. Like, that's the thing people have to appreciate is that the, what's happening with signal deprecation, with privacy legislation, like, let's just pretend that it's, you know, clean and clear and all, with all the stuff that it isn't. But the the sentiment is, you know, stop following consumers around unless they want you to. And everything that we have been doing and building is about following consumers around. Not in a, you know, I don't think I don't think we intended it to be malicious or creepy, but we just didn't do a good enough job. And here we are. So that breaks a lot of the notions that were built into that early vision. But again, I came from a place that was that was kind of pure <laughs> and like, you know, in a like, oh, it's going to be so much better for consumers and they're going to love it. No, like actually, it turns out that consumers are highly, highly variable in how they think about stuff and they should have the right to be like, I am not interested in being followed around because you might think it's good for me, but I don't like it. And and I think it was a little bit um, of a surprise how aggressive platforms like Apple would be in this whole effort. I mean, even at the early early days, we had Microsoft and their browser kind of playing games of the ad tech ecosystem. But yeah. Apple just threw a bomb into it. I think. On a certain level, we should have seen it coming, but we all kind of had our heads down just sort of doing the things that we yeah. thought were, were, you know, quote unquote, good. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, the whole do not track debacle was kind I, of the first. I, yeah. First effort. I, I, I so not to toot my own horn, but like I wrote a piece of research like 10 years ago that was called something like how to diffuse digital privacy concerns <laughs> at Forrester. And it was literally all about like. You know, like giving consumers transparency and choice and like, you know, trying to get ahead of some of these things by upping our game and doing a better job and obsessing over the value exchange and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, I mean, I definitely wasn't the only one saying it. It happens that I said it, but I definitely wasn't the only one. But we did nothing. <laughs> we did none of those yeah. things. <laughs> so here we are. Yeah, the solutions were always like buried in some weird technical specification. Like websites would be able to pass their privacy policies in a compact form and the HTTP request. It's like, come on. This is just like missing the point. That That's right. It's about it's missing the point. Like that's yeah. fundamentally what it is. And it blew up in our face. Uh, yes. Basically. Uh, one of the things I, I once heard you speak, I just want to give you a compliment because I really liked uh, this, was that it was early in the CTV days and you did a presentation where you talked about how uh, television wasn't going programmatic, but it was it was adopting what you called programmatic thinking. Uh, and I really, I really appreciate that. I thought that was a very interesting way to look at it because I think still to this day, a lot of CTV and television is not programmatic and they don't intend it to be, but they do have a new appreciation for ways to transact media. I think that that's right. And I I mean, some of it is getting old companies to think in new ways. And some of it is, actually, I don't think that doing it the way that you want me to do it is necessarily best. And those are both okay. You know what I mean? I think the TD industry is is moving more slowly than any, any of us would like, but probably faster than they're comfortable with. <laughs> I just heard. I think you know yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in the meantime, I mean, especially when you look at the impact of the pandemic and the, you know, the just massive explosion of streaming changes in consumer behavior. I mean, across a lot of dimensions, but certainly streaming. It has to move faster. It has to move faster. But it doesn't want to sacrifice itself. And so, you know, I mean, I, I there's a lot of like you go to these conversations, there's a lot of genuine and earnest conversation among people in the in the 
you know, let's call it the quote unquote TV industry because it's TV and streamers and MVPDs, programmers, agency. Like it's a lot of stuff in there. Vendors, like earnest conversation yeah. about how to do this effectively. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent some time um, with uh, one of the streaming platforms at, at their, their their customer uh, advisor event this week. And, and one of the things that was brought up that I think uh, I hadn't really thought about before, which makes a lot of sense, is part of this is generational. And, you know, uh, the people in the room that represented, uh, you know, digital and streaming first, um, they were just like, there needs to be, um, you know, new people in charge that, you know, come from the digital era that don't necessarily sort of come from linear because there's this generational power struggle still happening that um, they all anticipate, you know, shifting over the course of the, of the coming years and perhaps accelerating that, that pace of change. That's fair. I mean, and I, you know, when you were asking me sort of marketers today versus 10 years ago, that's also true in marketing organizations, right? Where you have, you know, much more senior marketers that grew up in our world, you know, today than was the case exactly. 10 years ago, you know, that speak the language of data, that that think about, um, think about technology-driven approaches to things. You know, the good news is they're in very senior roles. So they're, you know, it's not like a default setting like, oh, I just need more technology to solve the problem. But they understand they have business problems. Data and technology are enablers of solving those problems. You know what I mean? So I think, yes, I think that that's certainly true in the in the TV world, too. But it's also just it is a, like the, the way the TV content is distributed is so complicated yeah and and, and the, the the some multi-pathways that lead to multiple pathways that lead to someone seeing content makes it less it's not clean in the sense that you could just make a decision like oh i'm just gonna start doing everything programmatically the way i want to do it and like magically you know the world says you know here you go here's the platform it's just not like that and, and there's just a huge transition complexity when half of your business is transacted in one way with certain currencies and the other half is transacted in other ways with different currencies. Just the forecasting broad, yes. and how do you keep the sales force from going crazy and all these things are real challenges. I'm always really interested every year to kind of understand coming out of the upfronts every, how everybody felt like it went. And we're right, you know, we're right in the thick of that right now. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes. Many more currencies, I think, are going to be part of the actual transactional process, but it's still, I think, quite experimental for the whole whole industry. Probably more like cross-platform or format packaging right. and much more experimentation with advanced audiences and different currencies, but not. I don't think we're yet at the place where it's sort of going to be the norm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's take a break uh, and we'll come back and go through the news of the week. This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo, viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. All right, we're back. 
uh, not a big change in theme. This week we had an- yet another uh, SSB-DSP collision. Um, it seems like one a week is coming out. So this week, uh, Pubmatic announced a new platform called Activate, which is a buying platform. And what it allows is for buyers to place orders in their system for uh, primarily CTV and video only inventory and effectively not use a DSP to buy that inventory. So uh, let's go, Joanna. So, uh, Joanna, this, from a marketer's perspective, doesn't this increase fragmentation rather than decrease fragmentation? Well, first, I'm just going to say, I feel like we didn't we talk about this at Possible? I feel like we did, where you, you guys were asking me, like, what's going on in. In ad tech, and I was like, there's this new trend. You know what I mean? Um, So on a certain level, you know, maybe it was sort of inevitable that people are going to look for ways to close the gap between, let's say you're a buyer and and the end point, which is the publisher. So that feels like, you know, and we had over the last, what, 10 or 15 years, so much complexity and the introduction of so much intermediation <laughs> between buyer and seller that it's it's no wonder that that things needed to you know that it was going to kind of come to a head and things needed to change and i think also cuz the dynamics that we've been talking about over the like last however many minutes it's been with things like data deprecation and publishers sort of you know kind of getting their feet underneath them in terms of um sort of resting back some control of their business and all this kind of stuff and the rise of tv lots of things it's maybe not surprising that, you know, the average DSP is just going to be having a harder time competing because the thing that that I believed in, again, in this naive dream in 2008 was like, you must have, you know, this independent buy side platform. And it might be that that's actually seems like a great idea, but in practical terms, the way that the world has developed, not how it's going to go. Right. If you lose the data, then the decisioning becomes much less valuable. Well, and and if, if you lose the data because the publishers say no, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, right. the, the publishers have a, have a louder voice now than they than they perhaps did back in those days. And so it wasn't wrong to believe, I think, at the time that you needed an independent buy-side platform. And it still doesn't feel wrong. It's just maybe not necessarily how the world is working. And again, you want a clean, clear supply pa- uh, supply chain as a brand or as an agency. Like, that's not a bad thing to want. Yeah. Rem- you're effectively removing one hop in the supply chain uh, in certain paths. And uh, I talked about this, I think, in a previous episode, that it feels as though the DSP and SSP re- markets were sort of static on the pricing front. There was sort of a limit to how low you could go on your rates, you know, maybe 10% take rate or, uh, or whatever. Now those two segments are actually competing with each other. So that 10% on both sides adding up to 20 might be going down to 15 in the next year or two as they try to uh, route around each other. Buyers need to have buy-side decisioning. I want that to be true. So I, something I have to just wrap my head around in these announcements is, where is decisioning happening? Right. What are the inputs? You know, is it is it just for certain kinds of use cases? Like, I don't know. So please don't, you know, take this as gospel. Like, is it just programmatic guaranteed? I have no idea. Because those are the kinds of things I'd want to understand. Like, if I'm going to go direct, you know, through a supply side platform, what does that get me? Maybe maybe there's a rate or like a rate reduction. 
what am I giving in exchange for that? And so, right. like, it's not it's not a rhetorical, I don't know. Like, I actually don't know. I yeah, don't I don't know. know either. But I definitely think, given that both Magnite and Pubmatic are focusing on video, um, my thinking is there's less data available in video. There's less targeting available in video. So they're they're kind of trying to take these high-value, low-complexity media buys out of the hands of the trade desk. Yeah. So isn't it interesting? How interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. And um, yeah, we t- we've been talking about this like seemingly every week. I think this really is the story of 2023 to date as it relates to ad tech, you know, not not the sort of like broader tech. And what's interesting, you know, if you play out what Ari just said, right? Like starting with DTV and video, which are you know inherently scarcer, higher value, less data driven uh, formats from a, a buying standpoint, but then you know. Layering in what Joe was talking about in terms of what if data goes away at the extreme, or or if or if data signals are weaker, if we move to a world where there's a lot more programmatic guaranteed, a lot more private marketplaces, you know, things of that nature, you could have like a power shift happen way faster than folks anticipate to what formerly were called SSPs. I don't even know what they would be called in this world. Because they're just where the transactions happen, and it's pretty crazy. And you know, the the agency and the, and the marketer now, they they used to you know sort of spend their time with their DSP teams, their their, their DSPs, but increasingly they're going to be spending time with this category again, sort of formerly known as as SSPs. So this is um this is a really big deal. I mean, here's the thing: like when we did the future of advertising research, like three or something years ago, three four years ago, like we literally said. The world is going to be more like brands building these bespoke ecosystems where they have more direct relationships with publishers, where data is the new negotiation frontier, where, you know, they have to build some kind of infrastructure around managing these more direct relationships because of the forces of data deprecation, which was going to just change how we kind of bought and managed media. And that is, I think, what's happening. Like, that's literally what's happening, where brands necessarily need to be close. Not only do they want to be, but they need to be closer to publishers because publishers own consumer relationships. And they also, therefore, have, you know, good, healthy provenance over that data. You know what I mean? Like, that's just different than what it looked like 15 years ago. And I don't think the current offerings on the SSP side are very data driven. I I feel like these these Magnite and Pubmatic initiatives, and once again, I'm kind of ignorant as well about what they are exactly. But I think that they're about skimming off the easy workflow buys, the programmatic guarantee, the untargeted CTV buys, um, and just trying to be a cost-saving measure for agencies to reduce the take rate. I don't think they're offering like performance or data at this point. Uh, but at what point do, do they? At what point are you buying for an SSP and getting performance? And suddenly they're basically right. ass outwork. It's, it's ad.com all over again. I Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 have, I do have some trouble believing that the the sophisticated buyers of today that grew up with us would just be like, cool, yeah, that's great. I accept that. <laughs> like, no, I just don't believe that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. And again, not to harp on this clean room thing, because I don't that's not about giving like, you know, air to the clean room conversation per se, but the notion underneath it, which is, you know, infrastructure that enables for better management of data without the movement of data, those are new frontiers of negotiation that are just, just starting to happen right now. Yep. 
All right, let's move on to the next story. Uh, EMX was bought out of bankruptcy. So um, I believe they're bought by Cadent. The price was not disclosed. I heard through my sources it was something like $8 million for EMX. It's an interesting uh, story for two reasons. One is the uh, story, uh, according to Ad Exchanger, will not make the publishers whole. So uh, EMX as an SSP owed people a lot of money through transactions, and they're not going to be paid. Uh, maybe they'll be paid some small amount, but they're not going to be made whole, which kind of just is a bit expected. Publishers are always on the short end of the stick. And, <laughs> and secondly, I think it is interesting that Caden is a pretty large-scale traditional TV company. They they power a lot of the VOD uh, experiences in cable companies. They have ha have a addressable advertising business. I think they're the largest addressable advertising business out there. I'm not sure. And by addressable, I mean specifically how that's defined in the TV world, not programmatic. And so now they have an SSP. Um, anything uh, interesting, Eric? Do you see anything interesting here? I think... Um... Somebody was going to buy the asset. My bingo card did not include Cadence uh, for the reasons why you explained, just with the, the nature of the business. So the big question to me is, what, what do they do with the asset, right? Yeah. Um, and does Cadence become a different business as a, as a result? And then with publishers not getting paid, uh, you know, do they plan on just kind of lighting back up the, the former SSP business? And, you know, you have a lot of angry publishers that will say, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I've, been, I've been burnt. Yeah, you really don't want to be the publisher development rep for the new Kate and the SSP. Yeah, That's a tough job. <laughs> tough job. But it does go towards the continued consolidation of the SSP space. Let's uh, let's move on. So Macy's announced a another retail media network is powered by the Trade Desk. I think this goes into what we talked about last week when we talked about the Trade Desk's deal with the Tain, uh, where the Trade Desk is cobbling together a walled garden from bricks they find lying around. Um, but uh, the point here is if they have a deal with Macy's similar to the, the, their deal with Walmart, where they can use the conversion attribution and potentially use it across customers, it becomes really kind of valuable and interesting and a moat that other DSPs can't touch. Um, Joanna, any thoughts on retail media and how Macy's might fit in? No, I don't have any thoughts on retail media. Just kidding. I... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the retail media space, there's so much to talk about with retail media. And actually, I will be talking about it at Cannes. Um, so maybe I'll see you guys there. But, you know, the challenge for ret retailers, of course, is that they uh, see this as an op as a revenue opportunity, which it is. Um, they also see themselves all, all as magical snowflakes, which they aren't, even though they also are. And so the space is really immature, I think, in terms of it, like how the infrastructure is going to play out and what the business rules are going to be for dealing with individual retailers versus what becomes possible across retailers. That said, I have all kinds of questions about, um, you know, how um, they expand into into offsite inventory, for example, because, I, you know, doesn't it seem like they will be um, subject to the forces of data deprecation just like yes. everybody else? Like, right, you know, yes. that kind of stuff. Right. So those are open questions for me. Then just like larger questions around the use of first party data and the movement of first party data and control of first party data and how retailers work with build solutions that, and work with partners that is very protective of that. That's an open question for me. I like I have a lot of 
you know, not to be Debbie Downer, but I have a lot of questions. <laughs> the, the real prize in retail media is whoever uh, helps the marketer spend their money. And the problem is it's a hard problem because you, every marketer sells on different retailers and you'd have to get many, many retailers to cooperate in order to really have a value add to the marketer. Well, and you also want to make sure that if you're helping the marketer spend their money, you're doing it in a way that is sustainable, given all of the forces that we're talking about. And one thing is sort of like a market data point on this. Um, I think the the market and, and startups have, have woken up to this opportunity. Anecdotally speaking, the aggregator play for, you know, the, the, the sort of like mid tail and long tail of retail media networks have, you know, sort of started to emerge and the deal flow of companies trying to figure this out is, is, is really high. Eric, you just, you just invested in a company. Accurate. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we did. We, we haven't announced it yet, but uh, a company that is go going after this and in a, in a way that we're, we're really excited about in a way that frankly, Ari, you, you and I talked about early on in, in businesses we, we'd like to see uh, exist um, in the, in, in the world, but it's, I mean, it's like, I'm seeing daily, you know, startups going after this. So um, I think they're going to solve some problems, which would be good. Uh, yeah, but the problem is what we don't need is just more complexity in the solution set. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, we've seen this, we've seen this play before. <laughs> so yeah. we, have to be, we have to be careful. All right. Last uh, subject to Google I.O. was yesterday. Uh, lots of interesting AI announcements and they're bringing some AI into search. Eric, I know you were following this pretty closely. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So, and I, and I do want to ask uh, Joanna one question on AI, uh, you know, sort of like broadly before we break. I've been spending just, I'm trying to spend a lot of time in this space because I do think, you know, it's going to be like a, a, a great platform shift. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of feel like, you know, the generation ago, just somebody, you know, mid-career that's trying to like figure out how to get email to work, how to, how to, how to do Microsoft Word at, at times because it's happening so fast and, you know, that these things are so transformational. There's a lot of like cool um, workspace tools that they, they they debuted. So I think that for folks that are on the Google Workspace suite, you know, you're going to have access to tools that will allow you to have emails written for you, slides created for you, spreadsheets created for you based on prompts, um, which I think is interesting. The ad tech angle or the digital ad angle that I thought was interesting was they showed how search is going to be evolving um, for uh, generative AI in search results. So you'll be able to ask a question and have the best answer at the at the top, right? You know, similar in, in the way that open AI would work. Uh, but they were very clear to say that um, ads aren't going away. The ad experience is going to be part of it. So putting a bit of a stake in the ground that they think that, you know, Google search will be a place uh, for, you know, AI-driven search results in the same way that OpenAI and, and Bing will be, and advertising is going to be going to be part of it. Right. Right. Can I can I just say that times a hundred million billion trillion? Like, I don't think we have any idea how disruptive the stuff that's happening right now with AI is. I mean, I just I feel so I feel so behind the times. Every oh, every day I wake up, it's like thank goodness. it's so stressful. I mean, honestly, I forget I forget which company if it it was it was Microsoft or. I forget. Somebody basically came out and said, the CEO of some company came, basically said and came out and said, we're going to stop hiring for jobs that we believe AI will replace in the next few years. I think it was IBM. It was IBM. It was the International yeah. Business Machines Company. Thank you so yeah. much. That's right. It was IBM. Sorry, Microsoft. And I, I and I, like, that's just profound. That's kind of profound, you know? So I'm neither going to be a person who says it's all overblown. 
nor am I going to be a person who says we are at the edge of, of human extinction because of AI. But in between, there is a lot, a lot that is very disruptive to how we work, to how we communicate, to, you know, how we create, to what creativity means. And like all of these things will touch advertising 100 percent, but it's going to touch society in ways that we can't even wrap our heads around right now. I thought AI a good thing. And now, Eric, you wake up every morning sweating in your bed thinking about AI. Yeah, that's the job. So I think, Joada, you, you just answered my my question, which was, you know, basically this, right? So, you know, you had the platform shift to mobile a decade ago, which, you know, was was the biggest, right, since the, the beginning of the internet. And then, like, since then, there's been a couple of fits and starts to, you know, new interesting platforms. So AR, maybe VR, maybe not, but like voice and voice assistants and, you know, those were things that were cool. People thought they might have uh, been bigger than they actually were. So I'm guessing from your answer, you think that the shift to AI is big and probably at the scale of mobile is not the internet, not putting words in your mouth. But that's the question that I have for you. Yeah. I mean, it feels not to sound overblown, but it almost feels bigger because it's like, well, maybe not bigger than the internet. I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I just, when you start like having conversations with people about the ways that they are using ChatGPT in their daily lives, you wouldn't even imagine the amazingly interesting things that people come up with. Like really basic mundane things like help me negotiate with my landlord. This I heard this on Hard Fork, which is a podcast I love, to the like, you know, create artwork for my bathroom that's kind of cheeky and looks like this. Like it's just, it's craziness. Like it, the amount of possible scenarios that now exist for these technologies is only limited by human imagination to be to be totally serious about this. Now, of course, the problem is the potential for misuse also feels extremely high. And I worry about kind of societal implications with some of this stuff. Yeah, I think it's a huge deal. Yeah, I, I like to call it the hard fork. Whenever I after I listen to all in podcasts, I feel really dirty. So I listen to the hard fork and it's a good palate cleanser. Except that it's also terrifying, by the way. I mean, they make you they make you laugh, but I mean, a lot and a lot of what I very funny. Uh, Is deep. So let's close out this conversation. This is a great, great conversation, Uh, Joanna. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I think you gave us great perspective on uh, marketers and the market. And congrats again on your new job. We'll be looking forward to your continued uh, presence at the various events where we all travel the world to see each other. Yeah, like I said, just try and stop me. (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much, Joanna. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And just a reminder, uh, try out the Marketecture uh, AI bot. Go to marketecture.tv. There's a tab that says AI bot and ask it your random questions that you'd be too embarrassed to tweet at me. Uh, and that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.